20. From verse 18 to verse 22. Okay. Tom Hanks. What better way for me to begin my first sermon back after a break than with Tom Hanks. Okay, so if you've been following the news uh, recently, there's probably a couple of things you know about Tom Hanks, right? One thing you know about Tom Hanks is that Tom Hanks, uh, he developed, he was diagnosed with coronavirus. Remember that? Uh, he was one of the first famous people uh, to get COVID-19. So that we know that about Tom Hanks. The second thing we might know about Tom Hanks concerns a gesture of kindness. Did you hear about this? Did you read about this? And there was a child, a kid, a boy in school. Um, I think it was in the United States. And this kid, um, he was going through a really, really hard time of it. And so the child had a strange name. So I think the kid was called Corona. Okay. And because of this and because children can be cruel. <laughs> because of this and because of the fact that children can be cruel. Uh, this poor boy was being ignored in school and he was being insulted in school and he was being marginalized. Okay, poor kid. So what's the story? Well, the story is that Tom Hanks uh, takes time out of his still really busy schedule and he takes time to write a handwritten letter uh, to this kid. And he takes time to write this and he, he does it to encourage the child to persevere with all of these these insults and uh, these nastiness going. Do you think that's nice? I think that's really nice. That's a heartwarming story. You know, I think good on uh, Tom. Uh, Tom, you can imagine the excitement for that family. Can you receiving the letter from Tom Hanks? I'm sure you can. You know, like, uh, dear, what is in the post today? Is it my sort of mobile phone bill? Is it the latest edition of Table Talk magazine? Uh, no, darling, it's not. It's a handwritten letter from from Forrest Gump. You know, you can, you can imagine the family around the sofa opening up this letter, this letter of encouragement. It must have been delightful, right? It must have been a really lovely moment in amongst all of that difficulty. Why do I begin a sermon with Tom Hanks? I think, genuinely speaking, there should be a similar attitude here right now. I mean, surely you can see, can you, a parallel between the situation of that boy who's going through a hard time and the situation of the church in the United Kingdom. You cannot see the parallel. Like, we have been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we've got a very strange name as far as the world is concerned, right? What does that lead to? That leads to insult, doesn't it? It leads to marginalization of the Christian church and the United Kingdom today. And what has happened? In this epistle of First Peter, one far loftier than Tom Hanks, the living God has taken time, has condescended to write a letter, not just to first century Christians, but to all of his people who are opposed. And it is a letter designed to encourage us. Do you see it? I genuinely think as we gather, it should be the same as that family. We should gather really genuinely excited by this letter that you and I have got in our hands today. But what of this section, right? This particular part of this letter. Well, from verse 18 of chapter 3, what Peter does 
is he sort of zeroes in on specific spiritual realities that should encourage the church. You got it? Specific spiritual realities that should encourage us in a time of perhaps opposition. I think the best way of considering these is past, present, and future. Or I'll put it a different way for any who might be taking notes or want the points of the sermon. Hear this. This morning we will see, first of all, what Christ has done for us. Second of all, we're shown what Christ can do through us. And then thirdly, we will see what Christ will bring to us. I'm sure everyone in the room, everyone watching online, can see how that's past, present, and future. Can you not? What Christ has done for us in the past, what Christ can do through us, present, and what Christ will bring to us in the future. Everybody understand where we're going? Okay, so if you've got this portion of Scripture in front of you, that will very much help you. If you're at home, make sure you've got the Bible open. And first of all, let's look back, shall we? Will we do that? Let's consider what Peter says about what Christ has done for us. Right, let's go. Okay, now we know if we're going to understand this portion of Scripture, we need, you need, I need to pay heed to the context or situation. First thing I want you to do is maybe just to look in your printout or in your Bible at the previous section. Just just have a look at verse 13. Now, do you remember what's happening? It was a few weeks since we looked at this. But do you remember I said it was almost like Peter clears his throat in verse 13? Do you remember? It was almost like he paused, knocked on the table as he turns to the main point of his letter equipping Christians, encouraging Christians to deal with opposition. Do you remember that? Well, Luke, verse 14. Remember, what principles did he give? If we're facing persecution, hardship, opposition, first one was, we're not to be scared. Don't be scared of them. Don't be scared of your persecutor or the the persecution. Then into verse 15. Do you remember the focus on preparation? Do you remember that from last time? Peter is saying, even in times of opposition, maybe even, listen, maybe even especially in times of opposition, the Christian church should be ready to give an answer. Preparation. So that's the, the context. And we're still keeping into that theme. But I would ask you now, let your eye fall down to verse 18, the beginning of our section. And I ask you, what do you think of the first phrase? Do you see it? Peter's saying it's, it's good to endure suffering, encourage you in suffering. And then he says this, he says, for Christ also suffered. What do you think the logic is? He's talking about our suffering, but then he leads into Christ's suffering. I mean, is he just talking, what is he talking about? Is he just talking about us imitating Christ and Christ's suffering? Is he just talking about perhaps the inevitability you know, if, if, if Christ suffered, then as his people were bound to follow. See, is that it? Well, maybe that's part of it, but I want you to hear this loud and clear. Everyone get this. It's not the main point. The main point here is that Peter wants to emphasize the uniqueness of Christ's suffering. So to the opposed church, Christ, uh, Peter wants to show you the ways in which Christ's suffering was remarkable. It was different to your suffering. It was unique. And what he does is he underlines three things. Make sure you get them. 
first one is this. He shows us that Christ's suffering was sacrificial. So different to your suffering in the fact that Christ's suffering was sacrificial. Now, you know as well as I do, because I, I bang on about this all the time. If you're a visitor in the church, sympathize with the other people about the fact that I'm a broken record when it comes to this. But very often, it's true, isn't it, that because of our familiarity with some of the terms in the Bible, some of us have been Christians for decades, right? We're really familiar with some Christian terms, terms in the Bible. Because of our familiarity, what happens sometimes is that we just skim over language that's familiar and we don't appreciate and recognize how significant it is in its context. Do you do that? I do that. I'm holding my hand up, you know, even in sermon preparation, not just in the mornings, you know, not just sort of when I'm tired and devotionally, you're reading, but in sermon preparation, it will be the third or the fourth time that I'm reading the text before I realize I, I missed that. I've skimmed that and I've missed it because we're so familiar with the terms. Now, I'm saying to you, that cannot, must not happen here. See, look at verse 18. Now, what does Peter say? He says that Christ suffered once. Now, look at those, those words. He suffered once for sins. Now, we could just skim over that, couldn't we? You know, we're so familiar with that. He suffered for sins. What I want you to appreciate is this, that the Greek term behind those words for sins is the word used of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Everybody knows what that is, do you? This, you know, where bulls and animals were offered to God to atone for sins, for sins. That word of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Do you see what Peter's saying? Don't get it wrong. Peter here is not simply saying Jesus' suffering was a sacrifice. Peter is not just saying Jesus' suffering was in the same vein as that Old Testament sacrificial system. Look what he actually says. Peter says Christ suffered once for sin. Isn't it marvelous? Don't you see? At this point in his letter, the apostle here is declaring Jesus' death to be a definitive act. The definitive act, the sufficient act, the once and for all atoning sacrifice for sin. And surely you see, Christian friend, the implication of that for your very life. It's beautiful. It means right throughout your Christian experience for the rest of your life. You need never, even for a second, worry about your guilt before your God. If you are in Christ today, you need never ever panic about your condemnation. Why? Because Christ Jesus has already made a sufficient offering for your sin. Let me repeat that. You think about your sin. You think about how horrific that sin is. Let me repeat what I just said. Christ Jesus has already made a sufficient offering for all of your sin. The second reason, second way that Christ's suffering is different to ours is not just that it's sacrificial, it is substitutionary. I would ask you, friends, can you just read on in verse 18 with me? Read on. Christ suffered. What does it say? It says, once for sin. Look at the next phrase. Once for sin. Now, the righteous for the un. Right. I think we could just, you know, pass over that again. We could consider that as just a dry academic truth, is it? There's be, the, the righteous for the unrighteous. There seems to have been in Christ suffering some transaction. We could pass over it. It seems to be a swap. We could pass over it. 
But does it not deal with a very live pastoral issue in the life of the church? Because you know what we are like in our Christian experience. Is it not the case at times doubt sets in? Isn't that right? Sometimes such is our sin and the way that we're living, such are the patterns of sin in our lives, the patterns of wickedness, that our sin seems to get in and attack our assurance as Christians, right? And sometimes we find ourselves saying, if I'm living like this, can I really be saved? If I'm living like this in this way with these patterns of sin, can I really be regenerate? Like, can I really be saved? And what, what does scripture say? Peter says, yes, you are unrighteous. Like God does not shy away from our sin and iniquity. He says to us, you're wicked. You are as wicked as can be. You are Barabbas. But what is the glory of the gospel? That a righteous one truly has stood in for you. That a righteous one truly has taken your place. Like the basis of the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice for your sin. What's the basis of the efficacy of that? It's the perfectly obedient life that Christ Jesus has lived in your place. Do you see what it means? If you're a Christian, it means you can have assurance. You can know I am in Christ. I am. I belong to God. Why? Because God did really, he really did make him who had no sin to be sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. You are unrighteous, but a righteous one has taken your place. So Christ's suffering was sacrificial. It was also substitutionary. It was there for you But then look at the third element in verse 18. Please look at it with me. It's almost a consequence of this suffering, isn't it? Would you agree? Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, now look, that he might bring us to God. Let me ask you to zero in on those last words there. That he might bring us to God. Now, really think about that. Again, the words are greater than they may seem to us in first reading. So it's the idea there of being introduced to a superior. Like I thought long and hard about an, uh, an example or an illustration, and I, I'm just, I was hopeless. So it just went back. The idea in the original is the idea of like a peasant in rags being taken by a courtier I'm being brought into the royal court. A big announcement. I'm brought into, you know, announced and presented to the, the king. That idea of being brought is actually, for those who have been here over the last months, we've seen the word in numbers. So it's the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament used for that moment in numbers. Do you remember when Aaron is brought by the people of Israel and he's brought to the tent of meeting to serve God. That's the same word. So I'm asking you, do you see what Peter is saying here? Like, do you see what Christ's suffering has achieved? Peter is reminding you that Christ's death has brought you the peasant. Christ's blood has brought you, let's say kicking and screaming, but brought you into the very presence of God. Why? For communion 
for relationship. And if you see that, surely you also see Peter's overall point here. Like everybody understands in the room, Peter's not just trying to write a doctrinal textbook about substitutionary atonement. What's Peter doing? What's he doing? Peter's seeking to encourage the persecuted, opposed church. Did you see what his, his overall point is? He, by imploring us to look back, Peter wants us to see this present opportunity. He's saying to the opposed church, look back, Christ's blood has brought you into the presence of God. So what do you do? You're in the presence of God. He's saying to the opposed church, so surely you cry out to him. Surely seek to use this communion you have with God. And so I, I want to ask, I want to bring to you, maybe you're a Christian in here who's really concerned by the plight of Christianity across the world. Maybe that's true of you. Maybe you're concerned about the plight of Christianity in the United Kingdom today, are you? You know, when you see governments pursue hate speech legislation, right? This seeks to almost, or seems to impinge upon Christian witness. Does that concern you desperately? Or you hear, you know, Christianity absolutely lambasted on social media. Does that concern you? Or when you hear the taunts of your school friends and the taunts of your work colleagues and your unbelieving family members, are you concerned? Then surely this morning, this is for you. Hear Peter. He points you back to the cross. He says, look at the access that Christ's blood has secured. And then what do you do? You must boldly approach the throne of grace. As a Christian, you are in the presence of the Almighty God. Surely you cry out to God and you lay before God all of these concerns. Here, Peter prompts the opposing church to pray. So we look back, what has Christ done for us? Secondly, what Christ, what Christ can do through us, right? We're in the present. What can Christ do through us? So what's my job? How would you describe my job or Harrison's job? What would you say? Like some people call me a pastor. Other people call me a minister. I'm sure other people call me other things too. Uh, but uh, one thing, one element of my job, surely the chief element of my job is to be a preacher of good news, right? That's the gig. That's my job, to preach the good news. Let me just take a little break from that and let me preach to you the bad news. <laughs> okay. Bad news is that the verses that we come to next are commonly regarded to be the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament scripture. So if you are visiting the congregation for the first time, or it's your first time back in a while, uh, you've timed it nicely. These are supposed to be the hardest. Every commentator, every article I read, every sermon that I listened to said the same thing. Just said, basically, it's a bear. It's very, very, very difficult to understand. Martin Luther. You heard of Martin Luther? What do we know about Martin Luther, the reformer? We all know he, he liked a beer. Everybody knows that about Martin Luther. The other thing we know about Martin Luther, he never sat on the fence about anything, right? Luther always had an opinion, except for when it came to First Peter chapter 3, and Martin Luther basically said, I haven't a Scooby-Doo. When it, I paraphrase, Martin Luther, uh, definitely not a direct quote. Um, it gives you an idea, though, not to labor the point too much, but it gives you an idea of how complicated it is to hear this, that one commentator took time 
to analyze the different interpretations. And he counted the different interpretations. So how many do you think five for us would be a nightmare? Six would be really difficult if there were six different understandings. The commentator counted that there are 180 different interpretations of these verses. Welcome to my world of the last couple of weeks. Okay, so what are we going to do? Really though, seriously, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Well, what I suggest we do is quite simple, really. I suggest that you and I read the verses in question. We maybe read those a couple of times. Then we will deal with what is the most common, I'm going to suggest, misunderstanding. Okay, let's leave the 178 (laughs) other misunderstandings. Let's deal with perhaps the most common misunderstanding before I will suggest to you, and I'm not being too dogmatic, but I will suggest to you what I think Peter is saying. Everybody get the general idea? That's the way it goes, isn't it? We read the verses humbly, prayerfully. We look at one common misunderstanding, the most common misunderstanding, and then we deal with the actual truth here. Okay? Will we go for it? Look with me to the last couple of words of verse 18. You got there? Everyone got there? Last couple of words of verse 18. You need, you, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that we deal with this. Let's look at the last few words. Right, so I've said, the Spirit, capitalized, in whom... Right, here we go. Ready? In the Spirit, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Can I read that again? You read it with me? So, in the Spirit, Christ went and proclaimed to whom? To the spirits. Where are they? They're in the prison because they formerly did not obey when, what time frame are we dealing with? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, the common inter- misinterpretation. Stick with me. Stick with me. Stick with me. Okay. We've read Genesis 6, right? You allow me to say an unusual portion of scripture? So, one interpretation of Genesis chapter 6 is that there it deals with a time where fallen angels were on the earth. That's one inter... Not universally accepted. One interpretation. The Genesis 6, before the flood, you've got evil angels on the earth, roaming the earth. What are they doing? They are intermarrying with humanity. Everybody still with me? Fallen angels, and they are intermarrying human women. Okay, now, I mentioned that that's important because many, many people think that's what verse 19 is looking at and dealing with here. So do you see the idea? So when Peter says, Christ goes to proclaim to the spirits, what, what is that interpretation saying? It's saying that after Christ's resurrection or before his death and resurrection, what does Jesus do? By the spirit, he goes to these fallen angels of Noah's day who are now being kept captive by God, Christ goes to those fallen angels and he, very, very important, he proclaims his victory 
to those angels who were wicked in Noah's days. Everybody got it? Post-resurrection, in a spirit, Christ goes to these fallen angels, proclaims his victory to them. Okay, now, what do you think of that? I'd love to know. Here's the truth, bottom line. That could be right. Could be right. I mean, it is for, in the interest of transparency, that is the majority position of, I think, most evangelical scholars today. They would go that route. I'm just going to really briefly suggest a couple of reasons why, a couple of the many reasons why I don't think it's right. Okay, stick with these. First is, why on earth would Christ be so selective? Like, why, post-resurrection, if Christ is going to proclaim his victory to fallen angels and even evil angels, why on earth does Christ only do that to those from Noah's time and Noah's day? Why not proclaim your victory, Christ, to all fallen angels, all evil? You see, it's unexplained, certainly. It seems just random. So I'm, I think that's a problematic issue. The second problematic issue is much more grounded in the text that you have before you. Because what exactly is Christ said to do in verse 19? Get to it. Verse 19, what does Christ do? He, what's the verb? He proclaims. Right? Now, the Greek word is the word karutso, which some of you in this room know. If you know the word, you know that it's not just a general term in the New Testament for proclaiming something. You see, it's not an unspecified term. 99 times out of 100 in the New Testament, if you see Caruso, it is this idea. It is the idea of the proclamation or the heralding of the gospel. Technical term in the New Testament. The proclamation of the good news, something which I'm sure everyone sees in here has nothing to do with the angels. The angels don't receive What's this idea that Christ goes post-resurrection, proclaims, if you believe, if you repent and believe you are saved, this has nothing to do with the, the angelic realm, I suggest, humbly. Now, where does this leave us? It leaves us to try and pursue the correct interpretation. I'm going to ask you, are you still with me on this? Yes, Pete's with me. Love it, Pete. Great. Okay, so what is... Peter saying, no, yeah, you got that? Right. I think the answer is actually found, the key to this is at the start of verse 20. So we're, we're asking, who are these individuals? Well, what is said about these individuals? Do you notice? It says that in the time of Noah, they formerly did not obey so, Bible trivia question 101 here. God sent a flood on the basis of whose wickedness and whose disobedience? Was it the angels? No. What does Peter himself and second Peter make clear? What does Jesus himself make clear? That it was because of the wickedness of men and women. The disobedience of humanity. Who's in view here? Not fallen angels. Who's in view here? 
but disobedient men and disobedient women. Now, I know immediately there is an objection, because what's the word? The word is saints in prison. Isn't it saints? So lots of scholars, I don't know how many times I've read this this week, but lots of scholars say there is nowhere in the scriptures where humans are called spirits. And I want to say back to each of those scholars, you are absolutely wrong in that. What did Jesus give up on the cross in his death? He gave up his spirit. What are we called in Hebrews chapter 12? We are called spirits of righteousness. What does Ecclesiastes say? The spirit leaves a man, spirit returns to a man. What is the idea here? The idea Peter is saying is that Christ Jesus, he proclaimed the good news to those people in Noah's day. Yes, they were disobedient. Hence the reason that they are now in the prison of hell. This is people, disobedient people. Now, I, I've prayed, because this is complicated, and I've prayed all week that you would be with me until this point. <laughs> Are you? Yes. If so, and you see that it is humans, disobedient humans that Christ is, is said to preach to, I want to address the question that you've inevitably got at this point. How? Christ has said, Christ himself is preaching <laughs> to people in Noah's day. There's people in the room saying, but Jesus wasn't born. And there's, what, there's not this pre-incarnate theophany that we see prior to the flood. Like, how is, how is Christ said to, how can Peter say that Christ preached in the time of the flood? That doesn't make any sense, does it? I want to say to you, not only is there an answer to it, not, is the, not only is the answer wonderful, but the answer to that question changes your life if you're a Christian. It infuses your life with absolute confidence. It changes your entire way of praying. Put the two pieces of the jigsaw together with me. How does Peter speak about Noah in 2 Peter chapter 2? What does he call Noah? Does he call him an ark builder, an animal mover? He calls him a preacher. Second piece of the jigsaw. This will test your memory if you've been here for this sermon series. What did Peter say of those Old Testament prophets way back in chapter 1? What did he say about preachers in the Old Testament? Let me read it to you. He says that the Spirit, in the Old Testament through these men, the Spirit of Christ preached through them. So we're asking, how is it that Christ could possibly preach to unbelieving people before the flood? What's the answer? How does he do it? He does it through his servant. He did it. He preached through Noah. Oh, and if you see it, don't you just see why Peter is talking about this in this epistle? Think about what he's just said. He said, you and I have got to be ready with an answer. He's just talked about Christian witness. Don't you see what he's doing? Peter's taking these opposed Christians He's bringing them back to Noah's time. He's taking opposed Christians back to another time in human history when there was great opposition and great disbelief. And Peter's reminding the opposed church of one crucial truth. Even when there is opposition, Christ preaches through his people. Yes, there might be disbelief. Yes, there might be persecution. Yes, there might be opposition. Heidelberg Catechism says the preaching of the word of God 
is the word of God. And do you see how that should infuse us with a new confidence? Do you see how that changes your life? If you're a Christian, you can actually go out into London today. What can you do? You can witness. And you can do so with great anticipation and great excitement as you speak to your friends, you speak to your family, you speak to your colleagues. Christ can speak through your witness. Doesn't it change your prayer life? Doesn't it change how you pray for the proclamation of the gospel Sunday by Sunday? What are you seeing here? What is Peter showing the persecuted church, the opposed church, even in a day and age like ours? Christ speaks through his people. If we will only hold out the good news of salvation. So we've seen what Christ has done for us. We see what Christ can do through us. And then we end. Third thing what Christ will bring to us. What Christ Jesus will bring to us. Do you remember what I said at the beginning? Do you remember I said that it would be past, present, and future? We've got that, right? Well, what encouragement does Peter give you and me and the church at a time where we are ignored or insulted? What encouragement does he, does he give us for what lies ahead? There are, as we bring this into a close, there's two sides of a coin, The first, very briefly, is that he shows us something about our future security. See, I I know that even outside of my family, that there are a few um, movie and film aficionados at London City Presbyterian Church. There's some people who love their film, so I reckon because of that, it'd be quite easy for us to imagine... 1 Peter 3 as a film, a cinematic experience, right? Can you imagine watching the film of what we've just read about? Because we've just seen the flood. That's a Hollywood blockbuster right there, isn't it? You know, you might, we focus the camera, the producer focuses us in on who? The disbelieving people, people who reject the message from Christ Jesus. And the waters begin to rise. The waters are coming. It's, it's, a, it's a disaster film in a sense, right? It's, it's, it's incredible. But is it not true that as we move on here, you're watching the film, you're sitting at home with a popcorn. Doesn't the scene change? The lens moves as we move on in this section because suddenly the producer, director, he focuses us on those who are now in the ark. You see how it changes? Look at verse 20. Now Peter speaks of now the few. He's spoken about the disobedient. Now he speaks about the few, the eight persons. As if now I'm asking you, why does he do that? Like, why is there this change to the people in the ark? You asking that question? Look at the first word of verse 21. What's the word? Baptism. Do you see it? He sees these eight people in the ark, safe and secure. He sees them as a type or a pattern of the situation of the church today. That just as Noah and his family, they were physically delivered. What's true of us in Christ Jesus? We are safe. We are, the opposed church is secure, not because baptism is any sort of mystical or magical power, but why? What does he say? Do you see it? That by grace, our faith, that pledge to God, it saves us. How? He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think, you think, I'm sure that's wonderful. Because you know what it's like in the church today? Our attention can be very much directed on all the things that pose us and we can begin to panic 
We can begin to freak out by the opposition or the insults or the lambasting of our society. What are we seeing there about the future? Yes, judgment will come. Yes, the waters of God's wrath will rise. What is true of us in Christ Jesus? Where are we? Even now, we're in the ark. We've no need to worry about Christian opposition for what it means for our heavenly future. You know where you are today? In Christ Jesus, you are in the lower decks, lying on a bed of straw, safe and warm as the rain pours outside. You are in the lower decks with the door closed firmly behind by the hand of God. So we see something of our future security, but I'm closing the sermon. We'll end with this because we see also something of our future. Wait for the word. We've seen future security, our future glory. Because we've had a break. Harrison has kindly opened God's word, hasn't he, over the last few weeks and preached on Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis. But we have been in First Peter for quite a while, right? I was trying to work it out when I stuck my memory's terrible, but I think we've begun this roughly when lockdown began, roughly at the time of that. So by now, I'm confident if I asked you, what is the purpose of First Peter? You know, if you didn't have your masks on, it all shout out in unison what you would say. Well, judging by this, by what we've seen, the purpose of First Peter largely is to encourage Christians at a time where opposition is building, right? Yes? Sort of. Sort of. More nuanced would be the purpose of First Peter is to encourage opposed Christians by pointing them to what is to come. Peter is very often called the apostle of hope. How many times in the sermon series has Peter pointed us to the grace to come? How many times has he pointed us to the revelation of Jesus Christ? Encourage persecuted or opposed Christians by showing us what is ahead. Well, you bear that in mind. Then look at verse 22 and see how marvelous the end is here. Look at it. Do you see it? Peter speaks of what we might call the triumphant procession of Jesus Christ. You know, it's the idea that, do you know what? In a sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not the end. So often our gospel presentations end there. It's not the end for Christ, is it? There's a procession, isn't there? Christ Jesus proceeds from death to life. Then what happens? Christ Jesus proceeds in the ascension and surely, surely, to the cacophonous sound of angelic praise, Christ Jesus then enters victorious into the heavenly realms, the heavenly places. Why? To ascend. Alas, the, the, the throne of power, the right hand of his Father. Why? To govern sovereignly all creatures over all times. In all places, that's the picture, the majestic picture that Peter shows you here. I wonder, do you see why? Do you see why Peter shows you that glorious picture of the triumphant procession of Christ? Surely it is that Peter here whispers in your ear, whispers to the opposed church, and so shall it be for you. That just as with Christ, the suffering was not an indication of divine displeasure, but is suffering a path to glory. 
Peter here surely implies that the same is true for the people of Christ, the body of Christ, the church. Isn't that of encouragement to you? The thought that one day the persecution of Christians in North Korea will be snuffed out. One day the persecution of Christians in Nigeria or the Middle East, gone. One day those taunts, those little jibes in social media towards Christians and Christianity, gone, finished with, done. Those taunts in school, the taunts at work, completely gone. One day the church of Jesus Christ will rise from death to life, be raised, and we will ascend to meet our king, and what shall happen then, Second Timothy chapter 2? We shall reign with him. Isn't that an encouragement? In a time where we are ignored and lambasted for our faith. I guess that the only thing that remains is this. I have to ask you, what about you? Really, hear that. If you're listening, watching online, in the room, what about you? I mean, you must believe. Any even notional understanding of Scripture, you must believe that there is a judgment. I mean, otherwise, God is, what? He is accepting of sin and wickedness? No. God is just. He must punish sin. What of you? One day the waters of judgment will rise. Where will you be? I wonder, will you be in the ark? I wonder, right now, are you in the ark? Where are you, friend? Are you today found in Christ? Let's bow, let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, our Lord, our King, we pray to you. We thank you, Lord God, that uh, though this is a complicated portion of Holy Scripture, uh, that it is living and active, it's powerful, and is a life-giving word. So we do ask, Lord God, that you would give life. We pray for those who do not know Christ or did not know Christ. We pray, Lord God, that you would open eyes to see the glory of Jesus of Nazareth. We pray, Lord God, for the church. Lord, we are not persecuted as such. But we know just like the readers of, the first readers of this epistle, that there are the beginnings of murmuring against the people of God. We ask that you would help us to be strong and courageous, prayerful, and resting in the power of our Savior, in whose name we pray all of these things. Amen.